Right, look at this guy. <clears throat> Sight for sore eyes here. <laughs> Glad to have you back, man. Can I borrow your Bible again? We're going to do our scripture reading. I'm unprepared. Let's stand together. We are going to take a break from our series in Mark, and Luke is going to be sharing what he learned on a sabbatical with us. Uh, but we are going to read the scriptures first, and we're in the book of Psalms. We're going to read Psalm 2. That's on page eight, uh, 448 if you have one of the Bibles that we provide. Psalm 2. And as we read, let me remind you, we are reading God's Word. Psalm chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's word. You can be seated. Thanks, buddy. Well, how's it going? Good to see you. It's been a while. Yeah, it's good to, good to see you guys. Um, we really did miss you. Uh, for those of you who don't know, and I think that's a number of you because, uh, you know, I've heard we had about 50 people go through our Start Here class, most of whom have never met me. So if that's you, hi, I'm Luke. <laughs> Hope we like each other. Um, hope I don't screw up whatever you've enjoyed about our church so far. Um, but it's great to see you. I've met, talked to other people who said, we didn't even know you were gone, which I said, perfect. That's, I don't know that says more about me or you. I don't know. But, but uh, anyway, so it is great to see you. Uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, the elders graciously gave uh, myself and my family a 10-week sabbatical that uh, we just returned from about a week and a half ago. And really was the, a, a purpose of rest and recalibration. We've been at this uh, church planting, pastoring work for about six, seven years. And uh, we felt like it was just a, a natural and, and good time to be able to step back and try to recalibrate and try to refresh and try to be able to make it where we could kind of lead into this next season of ministry with energy and passion and, and strength. And I'm so thankful for the wisdom and the, and the grace, really, of our elders to be able to uh, offer that proactively rather than as a reaction to some crisis or you know being on the edge of a cliff in some kind of way. And uh, we, we really are coming back refreshed and encouraged and and really thankful for that. So uh, what we've decided to do is to take a break from the Gospel of Mark today, and I'm just going to share a number of lessons uh, from this sabbatical. And uh, hopefully this will be a way just to be able to maybe bring you in on some of what the Lord has, has been doing in my heart and in my family's heart. Um, also, I, I, I think it will help save me hundreds of conversations. 
of uh, what did you learn? How did it go? So we'll, we'll kind of do that all together and, uh, and hopefully you'll get some encouragement from it. Um, I, I had a lot of different things that I learned, uh, many of which I am not including today just for the sake of time and your interest and whatever else. And, uh, but, but I've got eight different lessons that we're going to look at. They kind of uh, it turns out they sort of begin sort of things that I sort of learn personally and family and kind of move out to culture and then move out toward things I, I learned and saw about the Lord. And so we'll kind of finish where, uh, at Psalm 2, which is what Matthew just read a little bit ago. But hopefully you'll be encouraged and um, blessed by this uh, as we were. So let me, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you. God, thank you for this time. Thanks for what you gave our family. Not just in the time off, but the experiences and the memories and the insights. And so, God, I pray now with a, with a different or a fresh perspective that you would allow me to encourage your people. God, I pray that some of the things that we learned over the next month and the next years would continue to bless uh, myself, my family, our church, our city, and our world. God, we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, the purpose of the sabbatical was rest and recalibration. And the good part is when you recalibrate and you pull back, you gain some perspective. And so a number of the lessons that I'm going to share with you today are things that I think I already knew. Um, but seeing them in a new perspective has put a whole new weight on them, has gripped my heart in a whole new way where it's like these would have been things that maybe I acknowledged to be true, but now in a, in a deeper way than ever sort of experience that they're true. And uh, so my hope is that it encourages you. Here's the first thing that we learned. We already knew this, but we learned this overwhelmingly, is that we are amazingly loved. Um, myself and my family have been so loved by this church, have been so loved by you. That's been the case ever since we started. We started with a tremendous a team of people who have not just been partners in ministry, but have been friends and who have loved us and loved our family. And um, the, just, just the idea that we could even take a sabbatical is an evidence of the love that the church has for us. Um, and, and we're so thankful for it. Um, the elders, as I said, you know, gave this opportunity, but that's only possible because they know that the church is filled with people who own the ministry and are going to keep it going strong and are committed to the mission with or without me. They're committed to the Lord. Um, they're generous. And that's you. And, and, and right, if, if the church was weak, if the church was tepid, if the church was kind of only dependent on a few people, they never could have offered that. But because of your commitment and your love for us and for this church, and most of all for God and his mission, this, this was possible. And so we're really thankful. And we just had some amazing experiences of God's love. Even as we got back last week, we were at the 5 o'clock service last Sunday and had a number of people that said, hey, we prayed for you every night that you were gone, which I thought... I don't know if I prayed for me every night I was gone. So thank you. And, and they began to list all the different things that they prayed for. And just to see how God answered those was amazing. We had a number of people who gave us just really generous and kind of out of nowhere gifts right before we left that allowed us to do some stuff that we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Um, you know, when we were preparing to come home, we were talking with some friends that were looking after our house. And they said, well, would you like us to get some milk and get some, you know, cereal and some stuff just for your house so that you don't have an empty fridge when you come home. We said, yeah, that would be great. And so we get home and uh, we open the door and there's flowers on the, 
on the counter, and there's balloons, and there's a welcome home sign, and then we open the fridge, and we realize that it is stocked with food from a bunch of different people. We open the freezer, it's stocked with a bunch of pre-made meals. We go into the pantry, and it's stocked completely, and it turns out that about a dozen people, I guess, had gotten together. We don't even know who they all are. I wish we knew them so we could thank all of them, but it's like they just got together and filled our, they know our love language, right? They fill their house with food. You know, my car was beautiful and clean. It had been detailed and brand new windshield. I didn't even know I was driving around with a broken windshield. And, and, and just, just to see some of that stuff that is just like over the top, right? And isn't that how God loves us? I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing you almost feel bad for when you experience it. Like you almost kind of go, oh. but then you go, no, wait, this is, this is because... God loves us, and he loves us through these friends, and it was just so, so wonderful. So we're amazingly loved, and I think that that's possible for any person that's part of a church community. I think that's a beautiful thing. So, so thank you. On behalf of Molly and our girls, thank you. It was a huge blessing. All right, second lesson. Uh, information overload is self-inflicted. Information overload is self-inflicted. One of the things that I did on this sabbatical was I unplugged from Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and blog reading and email, right? I had this like scorched earth policy on email where if you sent me an email, I'm sorry, I haven't seen it. You can send it again. I'd love to be in touch with you. But like, I just didn't get any of that stuff. And I still, you know, we still had access to the internet. I still had, you know, my smartphone and we would look at different articles and keep up with what was going on in the world. But, but for the most part, we were able to to pull back from the deluge of information. And 10 weeks later, I can tell you that my mind and my heart, my soul, are so much less cluttered. It's not, I'm not as busy in my mind, not as anxious in my mind. Right, every thought that I have, I don't think, oh, I gotta share that, I gotta post that, that would be funny, I wonder if... Right, like that's how you train yourself to think when you're on all that stuff, and it's not bad, right? It's it's like anything that it, it can be used for good, it can be used for bad. But I know for me, what I experience is that information overload is self-inflicted. If you feel like I got the fear of missing out, I got I got to know what's the, what's going on with this, what's going on with that, what's going that's self-inflicted. And here's what I'm here to tell you, though I'm not sure because I don't know for sure, but I don't think you miss anything. I don't really know what I missed, I guess, to be honest. And that's the nice part is you don't even know what you don't know. It's just ignorance is bliss. <laughs> but we live with this sense of I got to know it all. I got to have all the information. I got to be in the loop on everything. No, you don't. And in many cases, we're anxious and we're busy-minded and we can't relax. We can't hear from God because we're so busy in our brains. Information overload is self-inflicted. Related to this, number three, the third thing I learned is that it is impossible to do it all. Right? We think not only do we have to know it all, I need all the information, but I have to do it all. Right? And, and a lot of times we live very busy lives, right? Multiple people are working. You're taking kids to school, kids to games, kids to practice, kids to rehearsals, kids to this, kids to that. You're just busy. And here's what I experienced on, on our sabbatical is I had nothing to do, and I still couldn't do it all. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing, right? These family members would be like, okay, now what, what are you doing on this sabbatical? Are you, like, supposed to write a book? Are you supposed to, like, do something? It's like, I'm not supposed to do anything. 
But even when you're not supposed to do anything, and those of you who are retired, you know this, you know, you, there's still stuff you want to get done in the day. You want to, right? For, in my case, I wanted to be able to read the Bible every day. I wanted to pray every day. I wanted to exercise every day. I wanted to spend time with my kids. I wanted to laugh. I wanted to, right? Just these things. I didn't get to all that every day. I wanted to nap every day. Didn't get to that. <laughs> you, you, some of you are like, geez, I feel so sad for you, right? But, but, but get my point. Get my point. You think, well, the reason I got I, I, I to gotta try to do it all is because there's all this stuff to do. What I'm saying is even if you don't have anything to do, you can't do it all. There's just more that's important to do than you have the capacity to do. You can't. And, and I think we live under this illusion, I got to know it all. I got to do it all. No. Listen, you're not God. Only God knows it all. Only God can do it all. You're not him. I read a really helpful book this summer called Essentialism by Greg McCune. The subtitle is The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. It's a book that I would highly recommend. And there's three statements that McCune says we all sort of tend to live by in our hyper busy age right now. And and they're this. Number one is I have to. Second is it's all important. And last, I can do it all. I have to, right? We have all these things we've committed to and we've signed up for and we are into and we have to, we have to do it, we have to. We don't feel like we have a choice. Really? You don't, you don't have to. We also say it's all important. Well, if it's all important, then none of it's important. What's really important? Not everything. And then last, I can do it all or I can do this and that. I can, do, I can multitask. No, you can't. And so McCune recommends replacing these three things with this. Replace I have to with I choose to. Realize that the busyness you're experiencing, the overwhelmed feeling, you've made that choice. You've chosen it. That's what we began to see. And I feel like we've lived a fairly balanced life, so to speak. But yet we still realize we've made a lot of choices that have made us more frazzled than we need to be. It's all important? No. Only a few things really matter. I can do it all? No. You can do anything you want, but you can't do everything. Do you realize your limits? Do you realize how tired it's making you? And do you realize you don't have to do that? You're not missing much, except for what's really, really important, like your soul your character, your family. You don't need to know it. You don't need to do it. You can't. Here's the fourth thing that I learned. You go, okay, I can't do it all. What, what do I do? What do I focus on? What do I prioritize? Okay, fourth thing I learned is that great people focus on eulogy virtues, not resume virtues. Great people focus on eulogy virtues, not resume virtues. I get this from David Brooks. He's a New York Times columnist and wrote an excellent book called The Road to Character. And in that book, here's what Brooks says. He says, the resume, the resume virtues are the ones you list on your resume, the skills that you bring to the job market and that contribute to external success. The eulogy virtues are deeper. They're the virtues that get talked about at your funeral, the ones that exist at the core of your being, whether you are kind, brave, honest, or faithful, what kind of relationships you formed. And Brooks, in his book, basically argues that we used to live in a, in a culture that valued these eulogy virtues, 
I think that's maybe debatable. But I, what I don't think is debatable is he says now almost all the emphasis is on your resume virtues. What have you accomplished? What have you done? How can you be known? How can you be famous? And none of that will matter at your funeral. Right? The day will come. It'll be in this room or it'll be in another room when friends and family will gather around and they will talk about you. And you'll be cold. You'll be dead. And they'll be talking about you. You know what they won't say? Oh my gosh. That PowerPoint presentation he created for that project was just spectacular. <laughs> Never seen anything like it. They won't say, oh my gosh, when, when he closed that deal and I thought there was no chance he had it, but he, he turned them all around like, wow. They won't talk about that. Boy, she was the fastest person to ever promote. No. They'll talk about that you were kind and that you gave of yourself and that you were courageous and that you loved. They'll talk about your relationships. The question is, will they be telling the truth? I've been in a lot of funerals where they say everything, but is it true? Listen, here's what's amazing to me. All of us know that what really matters are the eulogy virtues, not the resume ones. And yet, we got to know it. We got to do it. We got to achieve it. We got to perform it. I got to get going. I got to build my career. Why? Why? I'm not saying it's unimportant. I am saying it's less important. And if you can't do it all, then make sure you do the stuff that is going to matter. And I think being able to, to pull out of a lot of the achieving and the performing and the doing for me. And I got to tell you, it was hard. About three weeks in, I found myself just really irritable for no reason. Kind of just, Molly's like, you okay? And I'm like, I'm fine. <laughs> right? And as I kind of unpacked it a little bit, what I realized is I have no mountain to climb. I have no goal to nothing to win at. I have no way to achieve. When I realize this, a lot of my identity, especially as a man and as a leader, is built up in achieving and performing. And when it was time to just rest and just be, I had to undo some junk in my soul. And this taught me, great people focus on eulogy virtues, not resume virtues. Here's the fifth thing I learned. This relates to that, is that I am far less important to the church and far more important to my family than I knew. I am happy to say that I am far less important to the church than I thought. And I have heard that over and over in the last couple of days. It's been wonderful. I have not taken any offense to it. All that I've heard is, it's amazing. The church has been so great this summer. All these leaders stepped up. Josh did an amazing job preaching. And I got to tell you, when I showed up here at 5 o'clock last Sunday, I heard the best sermon I heard all summer. All right? Josh has grown. Matthew tackles this really important you know, topic right after the Supreme Court decision. Guest preachers are good. Start here's going great. All this ministry is thriving. We, we're positioned to have more redemption community small groups than we've had in years, maybe ever, I think. We're, we're positioned potentially over the next few months to have an abundance, more than we need of those, right? It's like all this stuff is happening, and I had nothing to do with it. Do you know how good that feels? Right, the, the phrase that Matthew uses a lot when we talk about this kind of stuff is the phrase finger in the jello, 
which is, I think, just a great sort of mental picture, right? Imagine, you know, imagine a big kind of circular thing of jello, right? And you put your finger in it, and you pull your finger out. What happens? Is there a hole? Nope. It's just, right? Just never even knew there was a finger in there, right? It's as easy as can be, right? Like, and I love that that's what happened with our church. I love that so many of you stepped up. I love that I, you know, I go away and I look and I go like, People still come, and a lot of them come, and a number of you have talked about how you've been inviting friends over the last few months, and I just love that, and it's so good, and it's so healthy, and it's so right, and I have no plans to go anywhere at all, but what a joy to know that if I did, church would be great. Just a finger in the jello. <laughs> but you know what? There's one area of life that's not finger in the jello. Because I'm the only husband of Molly and the only dad of my kids. And I could leave the church and there are a number of capable, strong, gifted leaders that would replace me steady as she goes. But that's not the case in my family. I am far more valuable to them than I thought. If you don't know them, this is my family, my wife Molly. Abby just turned nine while we were gone. Caitlin is six. And Mary just uh, had her first birthday. And uh, there they are. And they're precious. And I had a blast with them. We had so much fun. Uh, I I don't know if, if you're like me, but typically I'm so tired, both mentally from trying to know it all and physically from trying to do it all, that when they go, hey, do you want to go swimming? Do you want to play a game? Do you want to wrestle? It's like, no. I want to stay horizontal. Right? Or it's like, okay, I'll play. And after like two minutes, it's like, all right, great. Why don't you guys uh, do something else, right? And, and this, and it, honestly, it took a while to gain the energy for it, but it was like, m- my default answer is going to be yes. You want to swim? Yes. You want to you ride bikes? Yes. You want to play Monopoly Deal? Yes. What do you want? Yes, I want to do it. Let's do it again. You want to do it again? Yes, let's do it again. And I realize that life gets hard and there's moments where that's not always possible, but to be able to see that and to be able to see the value of that, right? I've got more scrapes and bruises and scars on my body than I've had in years because I went, you know what, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to be adventurous. I, I, I don't need to mope around and be tired all the time. I'm going to enjoy my kids, right? So I went and I got rollerblades, <laughs> right? If any of you have been driving down Sossaman early in the morning, you may have had the pleasure of watching a big old guy go, you know, try not to fall. Right? I'm going out there, I'm going, who? I'm, I'm so happy I get to provide entertainment for everyone on their way to work, right? You know, I'm out there. And, uh, and there would be these people, you know, like I'd be going down the street and there'd be these nice older people and they're, you know, out doing their yard or whatever. They'd go, you're so courageous. Right? Because it's obvious, like, this guy does not know what he's doing right now. Like, it is, you know, why do that? And, and then what does Abby decide she wants for her birthday? I want rollerblades. Right? And so we're rollerblading. And we're, you know, balancing together. And, and we're having fun. Right? We, one of our best memories of the whole time was we played dodgeball this one time at this gym. It was two on two. And Molly got to experience every mom's dream, right? Like, I get to throw a ball as hard as I can at my children, and it's not going to hurt them, right? Like, and so, and we just laughed, and we had so much fun, right? The girls taught me these things that I just would have never, ever been interested, like, like they're, you know, they're handshakes, right? So, like, 
A, B, C, delicious, hit it. That's the way, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it, uh-huh, uh-huh. You got the look, so do I, so peace, punch, captain's eye. Brick, wall, waterfall, girl, you think you got it all, you don't. I do, so poof with the attitude. Elbows, elbows, wrists, wrists, girl, you make the magic on. Right? Yeah. Any other dads? Any other dads, can you do that? I took a full 10 weeks. No, 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 no. Listen, I know, here's what I know. They're nine and six, and you know, Mary doesn't even know she's alive. But the day's coming when they will not be remotely interested in doing that kind of thing with me. But I'm so glad that I'm able to have that kind of relationship now because when it gets hard I think it's going to matter listen they can get a new engineer they can get someone else to work at that retail desk they can get another administrative assistant they can get another school teacher they can't get another mom they can't get another dad your wife can't get another husband Your husband can't get another wife. And they can. There's a giant hole left. Lots of carnage along the way. I'm far less important to the church and far more important to my family than I thought. All right, number six. And uh, I was working on some stuff earlier this morning and the computer crashed on me twice. So I don't think anyone's doing anything wrong. It's just some issues we're having today. So number six, uh, the moral revolution is underway. So moving kind of out of family and, good timing, family and culture, uh, or family and personal, kind of into culture. So this is something that I just, you know, 10 weeks, a lot happened in our culture, morally speaking, values speaking, right and wrong kind of speaking. Did you notice this summer that the moral revolution is underway? Right? When Bruce Jenner gets a courage award for choosing a different gender, you go, there's a moral revolution happening. When the Supreme Court decides we're going to redefine what the Bible and all of human history has said is the definition of marriage, there's a moral transformation underway. And it's not that it's underway, it's that it's kind of happened and happening. And so the question is, are you ready for that? Have you really thought through, as a Christian, what that means for you? How you're going to hold and carry your faith and your relationship with the Lord in the public arena? In the years to come, have you thought that through? Listen to a fantastic lecture this summer by Al Mohler. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he talked, referencing a theologian, Theo Hobson, who's a a Catholic theologian. Uh, Hobson has observed that there are these three things that absolutely have to be there in order for a culture to experience some kind of moral transformation. So looking at history, every time that, that the kind of consensus morality has changed in a culture, whether positively or negatively, these three things are always there. Listen to these and, and, and think through the grid of our culture, all right? Here's the first thing. That which was almost universally condemned is now celebrated. Check. Number two. That which was almost universally celebrated is now condemned. Check. Number three is where it really hits home for us. Those who refuse to celebrate are now condemned. 
See, one and two have happened for a while, I think. That, that's been underway. But what you are feeling and are going to feel more and more and more is number three. Those who refuse to celebrate will be condemned. It's not just enough to tolerate. It's not just enough to sort of accept and go, well, hey, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. You've got to get on board. You've got to say, yes, that's courage. You've got to champion this. And if you don't, you are hateful, you are bigoted, and you must be condemned. And so by doing and by, by holding simple biblical views, you will be condemned. It will cost you. Are you ready? Are you ready for that? I love that we live in a country that, that at least has up to this point and hopefully will continue to champion religious liberty. I love that. But I'm not sure that it will. And listen, I have no biblical guarantee that it must. Go to Turkey. Go to Syria. Go to Iraq. Let's talk religious liberty. Right, go there and be like, you got to give me my religious liberty. <laughs> Boom. You're not owed that. I hope, I hope it's, I mean, I think it's been something great in our country. I hope it continues. I think that it, people should do what they can to support and encourage that continuing, but there's no guarantee. Are you ready? So what's going to be our response? Are we going to go, oh, I don't know. oh I'm so scared. I, I'm so afraid. Or will we, will we move in as agents of reconciliation with truth and grace, love and boldness? Or will we cower back? The culture's changing. The moral transformation's underway. What's one thing that will help? Well, here's number seven. Seventh thing I learned is that you and I need the church. We need the church. We need one another. You need the relationships that make up the church, and we need the organization of the church. We need the gatherings of the church. We need the institution of the church, especially as we face a hostile culture. We need that. It was interesting this summer, we didn't, for all intents and purposes, have the church, right? That was by design. We were, we were, it, was, it was intentional to sort of step back and step away. By God's grace, we were surrounded by family that we loved, who know the Lord and who are wonderful. But, but it's not the same as having a group of people who are praying for you and encouraging you and exhorting you and saying, how are you doing? Let me, let me pray for you. Where are you struggling? Where are you weak? How can I help? We didn't have that this summer. And here's what I learned. Most people don't have that ever. Some of you, because you got to know so much, you got to do so much, you got to be so important, and you got to do all this other stuff, you don't have that kind of relationships, and you're just a sitting duck. And I feel for you, right? I felt that in, in a stronger way than I ever have. You need the church, you need the community, the spiritual, biblical, sharpening community of the church. You also need transcendence. You live in a world that is just flattening you out all the time with imminence. All that matters is what you can see and what you can feel right now and what you can experience right this second and what you can touch and it's very low horizon. And, and no one besides the church is helping you break through the fog and say, no, 
There's transcendence. There's majesty. There's glory. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and every person in it. Listen, I watched every NBA and NHL finals game this summer. Awesome. And at no point was there a commercial that broke in that said, hey, by the way, this is God's world. Rejoice in it. I watched wall-to-wall coverage of a number of different stories, right? Rachel Dolezal and the Duggar family and uh, the, the, sadly the Charleston shooting and all kinds of other things. At no point did anyone break in All right, now we're going to have the the talking head come on, and the talking head says, this is God's world. He reigns. He rules. That never happens. And if you're not diligent about looking for ways to hear that message and to be reminded of that truth, you won't hear it ever. And eventually you'll be so flattened by the here and the now and the temporary and the imminence of everything that you'll lose transcendence and you'll forget that this is God's world. We need the church. And we need the church because we need Jesus. We need Jesus. Everything out there is saying, you got to know, you got to achieve, you got to perform. And then Jesus comes in and says, trust me. Bring your sin, bring your failure, bring your wreck of a life, Bring it to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Where are you going to hear that? Except for through the relationships of the church. You won't. You need the church. All right, here's the last lesson, number eight. If you're still open to Psalm 2, good for you. We're finally getting there. Psalm 2, here's the eighth lesson, is that the nations rage and God laughs. The nations rage and God laughs. A lot of the summer, my time in the scripture was just spent in the Psalms. I did get further than Psalm 2, but Psalm 2 was pretty impactful for me, uh, partly because I was reading this book by Eugene Peterson about the Psalms as a tool for prayer, and he makes the point that you know, Psalm 1 and 2 really are designed to help you prepare to pray that you can't really pray until you see a couple things. And the thing you see from Psalm chapter 2 is that God is king, and he's the king over the kings. He's the ruler of the rulers. And once you kind of go, oh, yes, God's in charge. It's God's world. God's on the throne. Now you can pray. Let me read Psalm uh, 2, at least the beginning part. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that word means the Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Listen, that's the attitude of the world apart from Christ. Hey, hey, we don't need God. Hey, what matters is here and now. The nations rage The rulers want power, they want authority, they want influence, they want praise. And it has nothing to do with bowing the knee to God. And so systems and structures and people are all against the Lord. What's God's reaction? I love verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. (laughs) 
The Lord holds them in derision. The word derision means mockery. Not a great verse. They're raging. They're angry. We're going to, we hate you, God. What's God's reaction? Oh, no. Oh, these powerful people are making deals without me. These justices are deciding things that I don't like. Is that his reaction? No. What's his reaction? (laughs) Isn't that cute? Right? I mean, that's just the picture I get. He's just sort of patting. Oh, oh, you're the prime minister. Oh, you're the president. Oh, you're the, the, oh, oh, that's cute. Oh, you're the head of Apple. Oh, that's cute. You're, you're, You're a great superstar. Oh, that's cute. Right? Is God troubled by this? No. No, he's the Lord. He's the eternal, I am, always existed God. He's not rattled. He's not shaken. He's not confused. He laughs. And then, verse 5, then he speaks to them in his wrath and will terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Then verse 10 says, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What's the message of this? The message of this is that every king, every celebrity, every superstar, every ruler, every judge will bow the knee to God. That's what they're called to do. And and, and listen, if they do, there is blessing and there is grace and there is mercy. Do you see it? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And if they won't, then we don't need to freak out because God's got it. The Lord laughs. The nations rage. The Lord laughs. Maybe one word that sums up our experience this summer is laughter. It's, it's, it's life-giving. It gives you perspective. And I'm thankful. I'm so thankful to you for the opportunity to laugh with my family and the opportunity to remember that God laughs at all the insanity that's out there. But not just that. He doesn't just laugh at it, dismiss it. But in Jesus, he enters it. And he comes near and he says, come to me. What a great God we serve. Thank you. Thanks for giving me that opportunity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your grace and mercy to us that while we were still enemies of yours, raging against you in Jesus, you came near to us. God, thank you that you've reconciled us, that we're no longer your enemies but your friends. God, thank you for for the perspective that you've allowed uh, me to experience and to taste a bit of. God, I pray that all of us would remember what's most important and trust that you're on the throne. In Jesus' name. Amen.